Jesus and what evidence is there to back that up? And over the course of the series so far, we started at the end and looked at how Mark ends and that was a natural question that Mark asked his readers, who is Jesus? And then Doug preached very well on uh, Jesus' ability to heal and override sicknesses and have authority over sicknesses. And then uh, Luke came and Luke spoke, spoke about Jesus' teaching and his uh, style of teaching and how Jesus taught with authority. And he didn't just teach um, as though the Pharisees in the teaching of the law or the scribes and all of them, he didn't teach like them. He taught with authority. Um, and an easy example to understand that is when I went to college, I would have to reference everything I said. I would have to provide evidence that I looked in such and such a book or that web page or that journal article or whatever. And I would have to reference it in order to say that these aren't my own ideas. These are the experts who I'm quoting on whatever essay I'm writing. And that's how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and all that, that's how they taught. They taught by referencing others. Whereas Jesus came in and said, I tell you, this is my word, this is my teaching. Jesus taught with authority. And then Graham came and Graham spoke very well on nature. Very good, thank you. He spoke on Jesus' ability and authority over nature. And he simply had control over it. And then Mark last week spoke on what? It's always the last week that gets you, isn't it? He asked the disciples who people said he was and then he asked, who do you say I was? And Peter, thank you Peter, said you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he said, don't tell anyone. And then he went on to predict his death for the first time. And Mark records three, three predictions, three different predictions, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. That was the first one. And so we come to today smack on the heels of what Mark spoke about last week. Jesus just acknowledged that he is the Messiah. He has just predicted his own death. He has just said, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and deny yourself and follow me. In other words, everything in this world is useless to you. You're following me now. You're my disciple. You're known by me. You are to reflect me. And so that's what brings us to today. And I saw a quote recently, the last few days, and I used it this week. If you're on Facebook, you will have seen it. Um, many people say that they love Jesus, but they hate the Bible. And I would actually... Uh, I would actually if it were me making this quote, I would say, and church. But we'll go on the quote. Many people say they love Jesus, but hate the Bible. Well, what are you basing your opinion on Jesus on? 
if you hate the Bible. Because that's the authority of Scripture. If you hate the Bible, then how have you got your picture of Jesus? It's through your own values and personal inclinations. And usually what those people do is they use Jesus to justify whatever behaviour they're doing already. Jesus becomes a servant of them, a tool to justify whatever decision they already want to make. If you don't find Jesus in the Bible and accept the Bible's claims about Jesus, then you're not worshipping Jesus, you're worshipping yourself. And so we're going to go down that track today with the transfiguration as well read for us, chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, and see how all of that links together. So let's just pray before we start. Father, we thank you that you are the great God, that, that you love us, that you have given us your word, that we can study it, we can know you better, and it's your Holy Spirit that inspired the people and guided the people to write your word who lives in us now today so we can actually understand your word better because it's the same spirit. And so we ask that you open our hearts and our minds today to what you have to say to us so we can reflect you in your son's name. Amen. So, anyone know what today is? You've missed this, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> You've missed this. Jill's, Jill's nodding her head furiously. <laughs> today is, is what? Well, it could be. It could also be three weeks since I had a coffee, but that's another story. That's another story. It's a painful one, and I'm not at all happy with it, nor am I happy with Alan or Trish. By association. And Alan's just, Alan's just laughing in the background. Now, today is Dump Your Significant Jerk Day. Dump Your Significant Jerk Day. What does that mean? It means that your significant other, if they're being a jerk to you and you think that they're not living up to the expectations you have for them, today, 5th of February, you have permission to dump them. As Jill now likes what I said because she's waving Ray goodbye. <laughs> now, who came up with such a day? What, what sort of warped thinking do you have to do to come, have to come up with a dump your significant jerk day? But it's true. 5th of February is dump your significant jerk day. Now, the reason I mention that is because what if Jesus had that attitude? What if one of the angels had walked into heaven one day and gone, hey, Jesus, you know what today is? It's dump your significant jerk day. Oh, is it? One guess as to who Jesus' significant jerk is. That's right. Us. We are the significant jerk. We treat Jesus so much below what Jesus deserves to be treated on an hourly, daily, monthly, yearly basis. We are sinful creatures. Jesus deserves so much better than anything we can possibly offer him. And that's what we're going to see today. 
as we explore the transfiguration. So, if you look at verse 2, well, before, actually before we get to verse 2, a, a question that some people like to ask is, what mountain did this happen on? What mountain did, did this happen on? And there's, there's two main uh, schools of thought for this. No one knows for certain. No one knows for certain which mountain it was. Uh, some believe it was Mount Hermon, uh, just north of Caesarea Philippi, and others believe it was Mount Tabor in central Galilee. Okay, they don't really know, but they're the two main mountains who, where theologians think this could have occurred. Either uh, Mount Hermon, just north of Caesarea Philippi, or Mount Tabor in central Galilee. So, now we have that out of the way. If we go to verse 2, after six days, so only six, Mark's saying after six days after Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah, predicted his own death, spoke about what it's going to take to follow him. Six days later, not even a week later, they go up this mountain. But if you keep reading in verse 2, it says, Jesus took Peter, James and John. He didn't take the whole horde. He didn't even take all 12 disciples. He took three. Now, was it the three disciples that just happened to be standing closest to him on that particular day? No. Was it a lucky dip? No. He, within his core 12 group of disciples, he had an inner core of three. Peter, James, John. And I stress that because so many people think today that we all should be even. No, we're not. We all have different gifts. We all have different responsibilities. And certain people, because of their attitudes, their giftings and their desires, are able to receive more teaching, more insight. And that's what these three got. Even Jesus allowed Peter, James, John to have more insight than the other nine. Doesn't mean he didn't care about the other nine, doesn't mean they weren't as important. But these are the three he picked to give special insight to, to provide deeper teaching to. And if you read on to verse 3, or the end of verse 2, they were up there all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothing, Jesus, became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Remind you of anything? Up on a mountain. What? Moses, thank you. You're on fire today, Anne. It should remind you back to Moses. Moses goes up a mountain, spends some time with God. What happens to, what happens to Moses while he's up there? And he comes back down again? He's so bright, he's so, so bright, that they actually were so scared of him he had to cover his face. Moses actually had to cover his face because the people were so scared of him. After Moses spent time up the mountain with God. And that should remind us of this, that 
Jesus is actually a more perfect form of Moses. And you see that right through. Matthew is a very good gospel for that. But throughout the four gospels, you see that Moses is held in high regard, but then Jesus is actually held in higher regard, as he should be. But what happens then is Moses and Elijah appear either side. Why would it be Moses and Elijah? Okay, we get it. Jesus has gone up a mountain. He's talking to God. Why Moses and why Elijah? Anyone want to take a pot shot? Why those two? And they're very specific. Close. Close. Two leading prophets. Close. Very close. One was, you can take a pot take a 50-50 shot at which one was the leading prophet. Pardon? Elijah. Elijah was, the, was considered the leading prophet, the head prophet, the most important prophet, the, 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 the best prophet, okay? So that's Elijah. That's why Elijah's appeared on top of the mountain because he is considered the number one prophet in all of Israel history. Why Moses? The law, thank you. Arthur, you said the law? Yes. Moses brought the law to the Israelite nation. And so you have the primary lawgiver who God used. Moses didn't invent the law out of thin air. God gave it to him, but God used Moses to give the people the law and God used Elijah to speak to the people, God's wishes, and they were both considered numero uno, as messengers of God in their various domains. They were considered the number one lawgiver, number one prophet, and they've come to Jesus. And that's why it's those two. It's very important to understand that, that it's not just random picked, okay, which prophet's not playing golf today? Oh, Elijah, you've got an empty diary, you can go. It was a very deliberate thing, both Moses and Elijah. Okay? Very, very important. Now, at this point, we say, thank you, Peter, because Peter opens his mouth to change feet and says, it's wonderful for us to be here. How about we build three shelters? And we all think Peter's, you know, Peter. And throughout the Gospels, and even into the New Testament, we see Peter opening his mouth and changing feet, and sometimes he puts both feet in his mouth at the same time. But we're no better. And the significance of not having three shelters built is also important. See, we think, well, why would you build shelters? <laughs> you got Jesus, it's not raining. And two, you've got Moses and Elijah appearing from heaven. It's not like they're in a physical body form, as in physical. When Moses came down, as we spoke about, he had to cover himself. And often he was, had to hide away in his tent because he was so bright and the people were so scared of him. He had to cover himself with a veil, with a tent, in order to then be able 
to the people would feel comfortable. Whereas Jesus, in a sense, is God's tent. God's glory and God's honour and God's righteousness and God's perfection and God's love and God's justice and everything about God is flowing out of Jesus. And the fact that God is in the human body, the human body is actually the tent. There is no need to actually put a physical tent around it. This is the time to let that shine. God has come into the world. And so that's why we don't see them grabbing a couple of hammers and some stunt, uh, tent pegs. Because Jesus is a tent as such. And so if we keep moving to verse 7, here we see the cloud come down. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, the cloud appearing is obviously God. And no self-respecting Jew would have missed that. As they were reading Mark's Gospel, no self-respecting Jew would have missed the fact that a cloud appearing over a mountain, Mark is saying that God appeared right there in this situation. Again, think back to Moses. God appeared in the form of a cloud. He led the cloud, he led the Israelites through the desert during the day in a form of a cloud. God filled the temple with a cloud. There is regular occurrences where God takes the form of a cloud in his appearing. And no self-respecting Jew would have missed that. They would not have missed it. This is Mark saying, God has come onto this mountaintop. You've got Jesus, you've got Moses, you've got Elijah. Now, what does God say at that point? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now that does two things. It does two things here. The first is, as we said, six days earlier, Jesus has just accepted the title, Yes, I am the Messiah, Son of God. He has just predicted his own death. And he's encouraged others that if they want to follow him, they're going to have to deny their own wants and desires and selfish thoughts and follow him. Okay, that was six days earlier. And so by God saying, this is my son whom I love, listen to him, the first thing that's happening here is God is saying to Jesus, yes, you've got it right. It's confirming that what Jesus said was correct to Jesus. Was there a doubt? Doesn't indicate there was at this point. We can all think forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's betrayed, and what Jesus was praying then. At this point, there is no doubt. But this is God saying to Jesus, 
This is the father speaking to the son saying, you are on the right track. Keep going. The second thing it does is it says to the disciples, this guy knows what he's doing. Listen to him. Follow him. He is correct. Don't try correct him. Don't try angle him a different way. Listen to him. It confirms to the disciples that Jesus is who Jesus says he is, which only happened six days ago. Now, after, after God says that in verse 7, verse 8, suddenly they looked around and there was no longer anyone with them except Jesus. So after God says that, he takes off. Moses and Elijah take off and it's just Jesus and the three disciples. They haven't hung around for a coffee. They haven't hung around for a muffin. They've gone. And... Some people argue, well, that's just hearsay. That's just hearsay. It's just the three of them. This is all made up. We don't have time to go into that today as such, and I probably shouldn't have mentioned that because I've done more harm than good. But the fact is that if you believe this book, the Bible, to be God's word, if that's what you believe, and I'm saying you have to, you don't have to at this point, but if you do, you cannot then pick and choose which parts you believe and don't believe. It's a job lot or a nothing lot. Because by deciding which bits you take and which bits you're not going to take, which bits you're going to leave out, which bits you're going to just adhere to because they sound really nice, you know what you've done? You've made yourself God. That's a pretty bold statement. I've had plenty of arguments with God over the years. The record is about 23 billion to none in terms of who won and who didn't win. And I'm not the 23 billion. Just to clarify in case anyone's got any doubts, crikey, you're smart. So now they're coming down the mountain. They're coming down the mountain now. And Jesus gives them orders to not tell anyone. Remember back in week one, 1st of January, I said there's this thing that flows through Mark. Anyone been reading Mark? As I suggested, it would be a really good idea. Anyone actually been reading through the book of Mark? They call it the Markian secret, and if you've been reading through Mark, we're staying in Mark until the end of February, so you've still actually got enough time. There's only 16 chapters in Mark, and there's, what's today, the 5th? So there's 23, or there's 19 days before the last sermon starts in Mark. Chapter a day, done. But through Mark, you see this thing called, as Wal said, and as I said back in week one, the Markian secret where he will perform a miracle, something will happen, and he says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. The Markian secret. And if you, as you read through Mark, you'll notice that the people who he performs miracles on, and he instructs to not tell anyone, promptly go out and tell everyone. Which, 
Um, I, I'm always a little confused with when someone says don't do something, <laughs> you shouldn't do it, but then we are humans. So here's the mark in secret again. Don't tell anyone what you've just seen. In this, at this time, and this is one of the few times it happens, Jesus actually puts a time limit on it. And he puts a time limit on it saying, until I have risen from the dead. Then you can tell the world what you saw. But until that point, don't tell anyone. Now, why would he say that? In this situation, he's got his three key disciples, the inner core, the ones who are getting the most training, the ones who are going to be the pin-up apostles across the entire Mediterranean. These are the three that are going to be on the big bucks when it comes to the early church. Why would he not want them to tell anyone at this point? It's really quite simple. They don't get it. They don't understand. They have not understood what Jesus is saying yet. If we read on another verse later, they're still debating what Jesus means when he says, rise from the dead. Because all of Israel expected the Messiah to come with a cloud, then throw out the Romans, set up a physical kingdom. And his lineage would never end. That's what they were all expecting. Goodbye, Romans. Not one person suspected the Messiah to come as a baby and die on a cross. Not one. And they struggled with it. They struggled with it despite Jesus giving them repeated um, announcements. This is what's going to happen. Even when it did happen, they still didn't understand it. They were not ready to tell others because they didn't even get it themselves. If you don't understand it, how can you teach someone else the truth? You can't. If you think two and two equal five, how are you going to teach someone else maths that two and two equals four? You can't do it. And Jesus is saying, stay quiet because you guys don't get it yet. You're going to need more time. So then they shift topics and they go to be, you know, what about Elijah? Must come first. And Jesus replies, to be sure Elijah does come first. He restores all things. Well, we just saw Elijah. Is that the coming Jesus spoke about? No. Jesus clarifies it. Why then is it written, Son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And then they understood, in one of the other Gospels it says, they then understood he was referring to John the Baptist. And by saying what Jesus says, what Jesus is doing is not only pointing out Elijah has come and therefore Jesus can be the Messiah, and he's not just pointing out again that the scriptures are true because they predicted that um, a lot, when Elijah comes back in the form of John the Baptist, they will suffer much and the rest. And he is doing that. But one of the biggest things he's also doing 
is he's pointing, asking the, the question of sorts to the disciples planting the seed. If that's how they treat the messenger, if that's how they treat the, the greatest prophet that we've known, what are they actually going to do to the actual Messiah? If they tortured, beaten, killed, rejected, thought he was a fruitcake, John the Baptist, then what are they going to do with the Messiah when the Messiah comes? And by he's planting that seed in their, in their minds that the Messiah is not going to be widely accepted and all the rest, he is going to be killed. So... If we go back to the quote I started with about if you love Jesus but don't love the Bible, then what's your opinion on the, of Jesus based on? As you can see, some people don't like this story. They don't like the transfiguration. But this is God saying to Jesus and the three disciples and by way of them, us, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. If you don't spend time in God's word, how can you listen to him? Let me explain this today's challenge, because that's the challenge. Spend more time in God's word, okay? We've got that out of the way now. That's the challenge for today. Spend more time reading your Bible. Now let me explain why I make that today's challenge. In college, in college, and anyone who's been to Bible college, there's things called primary sources and there's things called secondary sources. Okay? As you write an essay, what lecture, one of the things lecturers are looking for is the balance between primary source and a secondary source. Now let me explain what each are. A primary source, for example, if I was writing an essay on John Calvin, then a primary source is actually going to the books that John Calvin was the author of. Okay? So the books that John Calvin actually wrote himself, that's a primary source. A secondary source is someone else writing a book about John Calvin's book. That's the difference. Primary source, that's, it's actually John Calvin. Secondary source, someone writing about John Calvin. Now, the reason I explain this is because the Bible is the primary source when it comes to Jesus. There's plenty of great preachers, there's plenty of good websites, there's all sorts of podcasts, there's other books you can read. There's all sorts of wonderful stuff out there to help you understand the Bible better, but the Bible is the primary source. And without the primary source, the secondary sources make no sense. You will not be able to grow as God wants you to grow if you ignore the Bible. It is that simple. The Bible says Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son in human form. Either you like that or you don't like that. And we, we can work through that if you want to come over and chat later if you don't like it. But without the primary source, 
everything else becomes useless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided your word to us so we can know you. It's not everything to know about you, but our finite created minds cannot comprehend an infinite, masterful God like yourself. But I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in a way that we can understand. And I pray that we will spend more time with you in the Bible, reading your word, reading your revelation to us. And I pray that as we then spend time with you, we will then be able to reflect you as you deserve to be reflected to the community. And we pray to you for this in your son's name. Amen.